All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and, and Associate, Associate Justices, Justices of the Supreme Court. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina. All of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Hello and welcome to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office. Each year, the Judicial Branch recognizes September 17th as Constitution Day. In this episode, we honor this special day by listening to excerpts from a lecture by two authors who wrote the book on the North Carolina Constitution, Chief Justice Paul Newby and University of North Carolina professor John Orth. Published in 2013, Newby and Orth co-authored the book entitled The North Carolina State Constitution, which provides an outstanding constitutional and historical account of the state's governing charter. This lecture was recorded in the Senate chamber of the North Carolina State Capitol in 2018. Chief Justice Newby is the first to speak. A frequent recurrence to fundamental principles is absolutely necessary to preserve the blessings of liberty. What are these fundamental principles? Why do we have a constitution? What's the role of a constitution? Uh, So often I'll be talking with groups and folks will say, well, my right comes from the Bill of Rights or this right comes from the Constitution. What is the source of your rights? And how do you protect those rights once you say that they are significant? For 99% of the history of the world, Those in power told people what their rights were and people could either say, we accept what limitations you give us or they get persecuted and perhaps killed. If our rights don't come from the government, what would be the source? If our rights come from the government, cannot King George III tell us uh, uh, the way that we are to act and come into our homes and have a general warrant and do the things that the British were doing at the time. Jefferson captured it like this as he sought to convince the world that we were not just a riotous group of folks, but we had a legitimate moral high ground for what we were doing. We actually put this into our 1868 Declaration of Rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all, and we'll see that the debate in 1868 said, what does all mean? That all are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, property, and yes, in 1868 we added that everyone was entitled to the fruit of their own labors. If our rights come from this higher source, what is the purpose of government? As it says in the Federalist Papers, if men were angels, we'd need no government. 
Well, we're not angels. We need a government. But guess what? The government is comprised of non-angels. Well, how do we protect ourselves from ourselves? Well, certainly we want to give structure to government, but, but we also wanted to make paramount that God gives us our rights. Our rights are then protected by the government. But there's certain rights that we need to spell out that we've seen the government violate and we don't be sure they don't do that anymore. Hence our Declaration of Rights that has certain uh, specified rights, but also principles, enduring principles, like a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. Uh, thank you, Justice Newby. I, I would like to say a few words, picking up on what the Justice just said, concerning the relationship between the Declaration of Rights and the Constitution proper. Uh, I was doing some research one time and I discovered that the great Greek philosopher Aristotle had actually tried to collect the constitutions of the various Greek city-states. And in the course of that, he defined the constitution. And his definition was the organization of officers in a state. And I think today we would find that lacking, seriously lacking, as a definition of what we think of as a constitution. Because once the colonists, after the revolution, asserted their the sovereignty of the people, they felt it necessary to spell out, to declare what the people's rights were. And it's historically significant that the first thing that was done by the convention in Philadelphia, excuse me, the convention in North Carolina in 1776 was to adopt the Declaration of Rights was the next day that they discussed the Constitution. The last sentence in the Constitution says the Constitution includes the Declaration of Rights. But the Declaration of Rights came first, and it was there that the people spelled out what they felt they had and wanted to preserve, rights that had been threatened by the colonial government and they wanted to have special protections from. And they also made clear that they had not listed every right that they had. And several times they say these are only some of the rights which are spelled out here. The people have other rights, the unenumerated rights, which from time to time have been discovered by the courts or added to the Constitution later. Um, so one of the reasons I mention this is that when I ask my students in a legal history class about where, if they were drafting a Constitution, does the Bill or Declaration of Rights go? And you know what they say? At the end. Because what they have in mind is the Constitution of the United States. And I say, you know, the Bill of Rights in the federal Constitution was literally an afterthought. The Constitution was adopted, and then the Bill of Rights was proposed by the first Congress and later adopted. And if you look at constitutions of the states, like North Carolina's, you start with the Declaration of Rights. And when Americans hear the word constitution, they think about rights in the constitution. The machinery of government is important, but that's not what they first think of. And indeed, it's not what makes the constitution the kind of sacred document to many Americans. I think when we look at the 1776 constitution, we need to uh, look at the times. 
Uh, we had just gone through what many have characterized as the largest civil unrest uh, in our country, and it had to do, uh, or uh, in any state, and it had to do with what is referred to as the regulator movement. Uh, what had happened, if you, if you can imagine Robin Hood, where the bad guy is the sheriff of Nottingham, okay, and he's, he's taking from people, poor people primarily, taxes that were not owed. Well, that was going on in North Carolina. Uh, part of it has to do with who we are as a people. Uh, it was hard for us to settle from east to west, so a lot of our settlement came from the north, uh, particularly in the Piedmont. Now, we had the more uh, aristocratic east, where you had the larger settlements, but in the Piedmont, you had a bunch of subsistence farmers, uh, generally illiterate, uh, and uh, they just wanted to get by. And so when the sheriff shows up and takes taxes and does the same thing again and again, something is wrong. Now keep in mind that North Carolina, for a variety of reasons, had successfully uh, fought the idea of uh, an established state church. Uh, but finally it was imposed on the people about 1750, 1760 that it would be the Church of England. And one of the complaints they had is that a marriage, uh, you can only use the Church of England priest to do the marriage. Uh, by statute the cost was one dollar. But they were charging folks twelve dollars. They could not afford to get married. Okay, um, So they were overpaying taxes uh, it was also part of the Great Awakening which caused these individual subsistence farmers to start getting together and when they get together they compare notes and say oh you won't believe sheriff came by and took some of my stuff oh same thing happened to me so these farmers uh, marched on the courthouse in Hillsborough demanded justice demanded that these courts appointed by the king render to them some form of equity. Uh, there's actually a, an order signed by the judge uh, under duress. Henceforth, uh, I will uh, uh, give justice to all. Uh, that didn't last long. Governor Tryon, Tryon's Palace, Newburn. Governor Tryon brings his uh, trained uh, military force. Uh, they go in Battle of Alamance Courthouse or Battle of Alamance. Uh, the regulators are uh, uh, overwhelmed in the battle and then to add insult to injury try and arrest uh, the leaders uh, and has several of them executed uh, and by executed uh, you know the historical records a little vague but the sentence itself says we're gonna hang you but before you die we're going to disembowel you we're going to do, I mean, it's the definition of cruel and unusual punishment. And so that's the backdrop for these very popular leaders who executive power, Governor Tryon, had abused uh, not only in the appointment of corrupt judges, but also in his cruelty to these people, that then when they get together in 1776, uh, how much power do you think they're going to give the governor, Professor Orr? <laughs> well, as we all know, the governor didn't get the veto until a few years ago. It was the last state governor to have the veto power. Um, but I also would like to pick up on one of the things that the Justice Newby just said. 
To explain why we're talking so much here at the beginning about 1776, when we're supposed to be here to talk about 1868. And that's because much of what is in Article 1 of today's Constitution originated in 1776. And what happened here in this chamber when the 1868 Constitution was drafted was basically adopting about 85% of what was in the original Declaration of Rights and just carrying it forward, more or less verbatim. And as we'll see from the drama later, there were certain things, particularly related to education, as an example, that were added in 1868. So it wasn't all negative that the government may not do this or must proceed in a certain way. It was also positive about what the government should do for the people who have basically devolved some of their sovereignty onto the government. And so in 1868, this was largely carried forward. And then in 1971, again. So if you read Article 1 of the North Carolina Constitution to this day, you're reading a lot of 18th century language, right back to what happened in 1776 at the Provincial Congress in Halifax. I'd like to come back, if I may, to um, the relationship between the United States Constitution and the Federal Constitution. Um, we need to remember that 1776 is a dozen years before the famous convention in Philadelphia that drafted the federal constitution. So the North Carolina Constitution was older uh, than the federal constitution. And indeed, the parts carried forward today still predate the federal constitution and federal bill of rights. Um, one of the interesting problems that developed after 1868 was the enforcement of individual rights. And really into the 20th century, it was the state Supreme Court using the state constitution, which was enforcing rights stated in the Declaration of Rights. Um, as the federal courts used the 14th Amendment and incorporated the Bill of Rights into the 14th Amendment, a lot of that litigation then shifted into the federal courts or was decided pursuant to federal um, authority. at the uh, backdrop of the 1868 Constitution, uh, you've got to look at North Carolina during the Civil War years. 1860, we had an election uh, about whether to secede from the Union, and the people of the state voted not to secede. And you're think thinking, well, they seceded. Yeah, that was the General Assembly that voted. It was the people voted not to secede. Um, there was uh, uh, roughly 10 to 15 percent of North Carolinians were slave owners. Uh, uh, so the vast majority were not. So then during the war, initially, uh, uh, the folks that got, that volunteered, but also those that were drafted, tended to be these subsistence farmers from the Piedmont in western North Carolina. Whereas North Carolina provided more soldiers than anybody else. North Carolina had more deserters than anybody else because by 1863, they're, they're hearing from home that the circumstances are terrible and they need to get home or their children and spouses are gonna starve. So there was a lot of contention to the extent that in 1863, 64, Confederate soldiers were in Piedmont, North Carolina, 
trying to uh, 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 deal with the civil unrest that was going on. So then if you fast forward to 1868 and this uh, uh, convention where uh, the folks are trying to draw from uh, different uh, um, interests, uh, to me, uh, uh, you'll hear from Rodman in a minute, but he, he uh, is what I think is, is um, the typical delegate, or at least articulate, of the, the situation. He lost all of his property in uh, uh, Beaufort County. Uh, he uh, uh, had raised his own uh, militia. He was then uh, uh, assigned by the Confederate government to be the... Uh, one of the judges in Richmond. Uh, he then marched um, to surrender with General Johnson's uh, uh, surrender, but he became uh, uh, a Republican. And he said, and in his speech, he said, this was a war of ideas, and I had the idea that not all were entitled to the same rights. But those who shared my view were wrong. And there's no intermediate ground for rights. You have all the civil bundle of rights or you don't. And those that would argue, well, we'll give some rights to those who have been freed, are absolutely wrong. The side that won is the side that says all means all. And that's what this 1868 Constitution has got to emphasize. So in the 1868 Constitution, power was stripped from the General Assembly, not just with various individuals in the executive, uh, not just with uh, uh, the uh, power of appointment of judges. Judges, for the first time, have our own safe haven of a constitutional article that says, uh, uh, that provides for the judicial branch. Uh, the, the roles of the executive and the judicial are very much uh, more specified there. Um, there were multiple attempts after the 1868 Constitution was ratified and where the old guard won some elections, multiple attempts to go in and significantly modify this document. Um, that failed. Now, they did make some changes uh, in uh, 1873 and again in 1875, but the primary provisions stayed. Yeah, and I'd like to second that because I think we're here to celebrate the 1868 Constitution and I'd like to say some words in praise of the document because it turned out to be a remarkably effective instrument. It combined a forceful statement of rights in the Declaration of Rights but it also set up the machinery of government, which has operated with modifications, but still basically the same. If you look at the 1776 Constitution, you know, the, the Bill of Rights or Declaration of Rights, and then a text. In 1868, we have Article One, which is the Declaration of Rights, and then we have articles that follow. So we have 14 articles. And 1971 just carries the whole structure forward. So we're still looking at basically the same kind of structure that was done in 1868. Um, and indeed, the 71 revision was presented to the voters by saying that they're not changing any substantive rights from 1868. 
unless they're asked by specific amendment to make a particular change. So you can still cite cases from prior to 1971 on authority interpreting the state constitution. But the other thing I wanted to emphasize is, unlike some states, the North Carolina Constitution is about the machinery, that is the, the articles other than the Bill of Rights, is about who is going to be an officer. We're right back to Aristotle and the arrangement of offices in a state. And it's worked well. And what's been generally avoided is trying to put in the Constitution provisions which are really not of that kind of structural character, but really more resemble ordinary legislation. Uh, and so there are state constitutions which have provisions, I am told, about where a certain state road will be laid out because somebody at the delegates convention had the authority to try to get that in the constitution and make sure that their county got something. And we don't see that in North Carolina. It's one of the reasons this text has been as enduring as it has. We've referenced the Federal Bill of Rights. Uh, why do we have a Bill of Rights? Uh, many of the states that ratified the Constitution in 1787, 1788, uh, did so saying, well, it'd be nice if we had a Bill of Rights. North Carolina is the only state to have considered it and not ratified. In many ways, we are the Bill of Rights state. When you look at these two documents, federal and state constitution, they're very different. Uh, the state constitution, we the people acting through our elected representatives, this document is a limitation on the power of the, uh, uh, of the government. Whereas the federal constitution is a, in theory, limited grant of power. The first question always is what allows the federal government to be involved in this particular area as opposed to the states. Uh, both of these documents begin with we the people. Um, these are uh, our documents. Uh, fortunately, uh, the 1868 Constitution, which has given so much power uh, to we the people, has endured, and it's our job to safeguard it. I'd like to pick up for a minute on due process. Uh, it's a phrase that we all know and um, lawyers use a lot. Um, and I'm often told that, well, North Carolina doesn't have a due process clause as such. It has the law of the land clause, which means the same thing. And I like to point out that Magna Carta used the law of the land. That was the phrase in the original Latin version of Magna Carta. And that's the phrase which North Carolina and a few other states have kept in their constitution ever since. Um, when James Madison drafted the Federal Bill of Rights, he could have used law of the land, but he used due process because a few hundred years earlier, a famous English judge, Sir Edward Cook, had said that the law of the land means due process. And so if you want to be really strict, we have a law of the land clause, and the federal government has a clause which is the law of the land clause, which they happen to call the due process clause. It really is our law of the land clause with a different name. Uh, 
But if I may, I'm going to end by, if I could read a paragraph from our book. Um, it goes back actually to the first edition, so I don't want to uh, implicate the judge if he has some concerns here. But um, there is reason for concern if too frequent amendments so habituate voters to constitutional change that they someday in the grip of temporary passion or fear tamper with the fundamental guarantees of law of the land or due process. Of course, the United States Constitution, far more immune to change, would continue to provide protection, but only to the extent recognized by the justices of the United States Supreme Court. You know, we're under a constitution, but it is what the judges say it is. The best guarantee of North Carolina's basic rights must ever be what it has always been, not only a balanced institutional arrangement of government, subject to wise restraints enforced when necessary by fearless judges, but above all, a thoughtful and informed citizenry, conscious of its constitutional history, and zealous to preserve the best for posterity. Thank you. been listening to All Things Judicial, a podcast from the North Carolina Judicial Branch. You can find out more about the Judicial Branch by visiting nccourts.gov. If you like our podcast, please share it with a friend and give it a five-star rating and review. Your help is essential to sharing the important work of the Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office, and I'm reminding you to keep all things judicial. Thanks for listening.